New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Today, I'm hosting poet and novelist and screenwriter Mary Mackey. Her newest book is The Jaguars That Prowl Our Dreams, New and Selected Poems, 1974 through 2018. Mary, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you for having me here. It's my pleasure. I know that in your life and all that you did to be a writer— I know at one point you decided it's hard to support yourself, especially being a poet. Yes. That you got your doctorate in literature and you became a college professor and that Mm -hmm. kind of supported you. But at one point that led you to travel to remote locations. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of struck by something that someone wrote that said, to be a writer, she needed unpredictable experiences where trees outnumbered people. Yes, yes, I I did say that. I love that. So this took you on wide Mm -hmm. adventures. Can you describe how they affected your writing? They affected my writing very deeply. I decided when I was younger that I looked at writers, and I looked at women writers in my era, and they mostly were limited to domestic writing. And there's nothing wrong with that at all, but they were relationships and, you know, a family and things of that nature. And then, you know, men were going out and hunting whales and, and going up rivers and, and doing things. And I decided that I didn't want to be a man, but I was going to do all those things, and I was just not going to contain myself. I was going to go out and live like, at the time, I thought Hemingway, you know, or, or something like that. So I just decided that I would take off and go to the tropics and live in the jungles and go around and, you know, see things. And I'm actually writing a little piece right now about my misadventures because many things happen. In fact, if you want things to write about and you want real adventure travel, don't spend much money. You know, take off and and go on a small amount and you'll run into things. And so I met people all over the world. I talked to them. I learned some languages, which helped that. I learned Russian, Spanish, French, and Portuguese. Portuguese, and this was very helpful. And I I saw how people live, but I was also very interested in nature untouched, the nature that's bigger than we are. And being in contact in the jungle, surrounded by a nature that was not changed by the Western world or by anybody, but was itself contained and bigger than people, really spiritually and intellectually changed me and made me understand that we see so little of reality when we live in our comfortable, contained worlds. And it made you understand the preciousness. The of. precious, the absolute preciousness of it. And I became concerned at a very young age with the preservation of the incredible, ecstatic, mystical beauty of nature and of the rainforests and of these great humming thriving, beautiful, blossoming holes that these great ecosystems are. Same thing with coral reefs under the ocean. It's the same thing. It's the same kind of beauty. Alpine, all these ecosystems which have individual life, also a unified life, and fulfills my basic idea that all life on the planet is a great living unity and that the planet itself is a great living being. This just reminds me of one of your poems that is just like... 
shocking and a little bit creepy because uh, it, it just and it just like whoa it's the army ants oh the ants oh, yes. uh, can you share with us yeah, that's because a very short one yeah. it's so vivid and yet it gives us some information that i i didn't know about okay so you're in the jungle now and this yes. is the poem army ants a black river flowed down our walls smeared the floor under our cots, ate everything, scorpions, snakes, mice, termites. They would have eaten us too if we'd not fled. Later we stumbled on them, sleeping in the jungle in a great humming ball, their bodies linked into corridors, their dead made into bridges, their pale queen at the center, bloated and quivering. Now tell us, I mean, when you say that you run across this ball of That's ants, right. what, you know, what is and this, this? You know, when you go into the jungle, when you see things in the rainforest, you see things that in themselves are poems or very different from what you usually see. These ants, these New World ants, form hives of their own bodies, huge balls of ants, and they make a humming noise. When you say mm -hmm. huge, how big? What Really big. You know those balls you bounce around on that <gasps> the kids bounce around on? Bigger than those. Oh, that you actually sit on like some people yeah, yeah, actually some people work sit on. on them and bounce on. Yeah, yeah. You they these huge balls of ants. Yeah, yeah. hundreds, oh, millions probably. I don't God. know how many there are. And they go, because they're keeping their queen warm and everything warm, and they make corridors out of their bodies. And so there's this big ball of ants. Then when they're, when they're on the move, they're unstoppable. They go through everything and the indigenous people in these areas uh, use them as pest control. They just move out of their houses and the ants flow over them and they eat all the pests and then they go away. They just devastate everything in their path when they're on the Do move. they eat the vegetation or do they Yeah, they eat everything. Everything. They eat everything. everything yeah. wow. But mostly they go after uh, you know, insects and, and um, scorpions and snakes and, you know, anything that doesn't move out of the way. You do many, many poems from the jungles of yeah. Brazil and Costa Rica, and they're wonderful. And then there's another part of the book, which is about rural Kentucky. Yes. To give us a flavor of that, can you read the tourist one? Oh, yeah, disaster tourism. You will see I am bilingual in Southern and Yankee when I read this one. This involves my great aunts. I spent my summers on a small farm in western Kentucky. I, I grew up in Indianapolis, which is considered the north in Kentucky. And then I went down there in the summers and we would drive around. And they were great storytellers. And this is called Disaster Tourism. Drive us around, says Aunt Kitty. We don't get out much. See that farm to your left, crying shame. Fools sold it to Peabody Coal, all the topsoil stripped off. Those folks never going to get a crop of corn were spit again if they lived to be a hundred. See that tumble-down shack? That's where Mr. Joe Brady took an axe to his wife, knocked her on the head with the blunt end, then chopped her up in four neat pieces with the blade and tried to feed her to his hogs. They wouldn't eat her, says Aunt Abby. Maybelle Brady was too mean a woman even for hogs. When did all this happen? Eighty-four or thereabouts, says Aunt Kitty. Nah, says Aunt Abby, you're the flood and the whiskey rebellion. 1792, late spring. Drive on, honey, says Aunt Kitty. See that place yonder? Last man hanged in Hamilton County lived there. Gave his soul to Jesus at the camp meeting. Less than a month later, danced on air like a backslidden Baptist. Man was saved just in the nick of time. <laughs> and what I loved about these people was that they had gossip that dated from 1792, and they would tell these stories like they just happened right in front of four-year-old girls sitting on the porch with them. They had no filters on these things. Now, I understand that because my roots, my ancestral roots are Alabama, and yeah. I know these women. I know going, driving down and hearing all the stories of, mm -hmm. that go back, you know, decades, yeah, decades. decades. It was at a 
time that this oral tradition mm-hmm. was held. It was. Things have shifted now, I mm-hmm. believe, and have you observed that? I th- Oh, yeah, they have very much so. Uh, I haven't been back to this part of Kentucky for quite a while, for about, oh, I'd say 15 years. But, yeah, those women knew the begats. I mean, they knew everybody who was related to everybody and when they were born back to probably the settlement of Virginia. And this, I believe, was the great oral tradition of the human race before we had writing and certainly before we had the Internet. Now you don't have to remember these things because you can look them up on Google. You know, people don't remember things the same way. They don't memorize things the same way. We're missing something Yeah, there, we are. We're missing believe? a kind of... You know what we're missing? We're missing the kind of micro-knowledge of regions and things. You know, like farmers in different regions, traditional farmers, they have the micro-knowledge of the ecosystem. And then we're missing the micro-social knowledge of the ecosystem. We're missing that human knowledge of who's next door, who's been there. We're so mobile now that we don't have that. I think it's a loss. It's like a loss of languages, of, you know, languages that have disappeared, that knowledge has disappeared, and a lot of the fine knowledge of how to deal with the natural world that indigenous farmers knew has disappeared. And it's a great loss. You read that in, in a kind of dialect. And I, I remember going to the de Young Museum years ago in San Francisco, yeah. and they had a quilt called The Women of G's Bend, mm-hmm. Alabama. Mm-hmm. And these were backwoods women who had done the most extraordinary yes. quilts they just blew the socks off of you. I mean, really, I just the, the artistry was so exquisite. And they were not highly educated or anything. And someone had done a little mm-hmm. film of these women. And I was so proud of myself because in the film, they had subtitles mm-hmm. because they spoke in this backwoods Alabaman dialect. Yeah. dialect. And so they actually subtitled it because most of us, our ears don't pick up what they're saying. Mm-hmm. I was so proud of myself. Spoken, <laughs> and I understood yeah. every word. I absolutely love dialects because I love words, and dialects are so vivid. And, you know, so I love to hear people speak in all sorts of different kinds of dialects, including in Spanish dialects. It's hard to understand sometimes, but it's very rich. And you put some Portuguese, in, at least in this book. If you speak Portuguese, you get a little extra. But if you don't speak Portuguese, it becomes a kind of chant under the poem. And then, of course, the Portuguese, I translate it right afterwards, so you, you also get the meaning. But it gives an extra flavor to it. I like the kind of combination of languages. Speaking of those quilts, you know, my aunts used to sit down with the quilts and point to the material in the quilts and tell you where it came from. So they were story quilts. They were like quilts where they would say things like, now that's the wedding dress from your great-grandmother, and that's your uncle who died in the Colorado Gold Rush. That's his suit. And they were like codexes or manuscripts. Those quilts were actually historical records of things. I'm just excited that you brought that up because my aunt, my father's sister, Mm -hmm. put together a quilt and she pulled out all of those things from different ancestors. Mm -hmm. And on the outside edge of this quilt, she would embroider a number on it. And then you'd look on the outside edge and it'd say, number one, this was your Great-grandmother, you know, Alma Braun Bowman. They're basically manuscripts. Yeah. And it was so exciting to have that ancestry quilt. It's It's just a precious precious gift. Very, very precious gift. So we don't have a lot of time, but I just want to end our conversation here with asking you, Mary, how did you become a poet? 
two things. My love of language. I love language. When I was a little kid, I made up languages of my own and sang them, you know. I love that. I love the sound of words. But I think a major influence was the fact that I have run high fevers most of my life, some of them approaching 107. And when you get there, you see things that are beyond words. There are no words to describe them. And that's all mystical experiences like that, of course. And so I've been striving all my life to kind of bring into words the kinds of things I have seen when I have had these very high fevers, the things that are wordless, I've been trying to translate into words. So I'm basically a translator between the wordless and the spoken. And of course, I want to remind our listeners that you've written many historical novels, yes. and especially the Earth Song series is mm -hmm. one of your most recent series of novels in, uh, that take place in Neolithic times. And so you're just prolific in all sorts of forms of writing. Right. And also the Earth Song series is about the goddess-worshipping cultures of Neolithic Europe. And so there's a lot of prophecy and poetry in the novels because that, of course, was the religion and the culture of the times. And it's based on archaeological fact, but then I get to fill in the spaces with imagination, poetry, and prophecy. So now I'm going to ask you to preview for us, and we don't know when this is going to be available, but we talked briefly before we sat down and turned on the microphones that your newest work is something to do with prophecy. It is, it is. Now, I'm not claiming, by the way, that I am a prophet. I'm claiming that there are ways of looking at the future. And what I'm doing is I'm writing a series of prophetic poems about the future of the planet in the voices of different women and different prophets. And the one I just finished a few days ago that I was telling you about is the prophecy of Elizabeth Bishop, who's a, a great poet. And it's her prophecy about climate change. Her lover, Lata, built a beautiful park in Rio de Janeiro that I used to live near, and it's going to be inundated. Uh, Rio is going to have the waters rise up over it at some point. And so I was thinking about what would the prophecy be looking at that. And I'm doing other prophets. I'm actually working with the idea of Cassandra, the Greek prophet who told the truth, but no one believed her about the future. And I think she's the poster girl for our age, speaking the truth, but having people not pay attention to you. Well, we're going to really look forward and watch for that one. And we don't know when it's going to come out because all of this is the muse coming right, as yes. it will. You know, yeah, you <laughs> a can't, moment at a time. You, you never know. You can't predict it. And I just want to tell our listeners that for this recent book, the Jaguars That Prowl Our Dreams, it was a recipient of the 2019 Eric Hoffer Book Award. Very prestigious. So just congratulations. <laughs> Thank you for so that. much. Thank uh, you so, so much. So people can uh, look up and find more information about Mary and her work and all of her writing and essays and blogs and so forth on her website, marymackey.com. And she spells her last name M-A-C-K-E-Y, MaryMackey.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Thank you for joining us at the New Dimensions Cafe. And I invite you, please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org.
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.